This episode may contain explicit language. Welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Monday, October 16th, the This is So Awkward edition. I'm Jamila Lemieux. I'm a writer, contributor to Slate's Camp Reading Parenting column, and mom to Naima, who is 10, and we live in Los Angeles. I'm Elizabeth Newcamp. I write the homeschool and family travel blog, Dutch Dutch Goose. I'm the mom of three littles, Henry, who's 11, Oliver, who's 9, and Teddy, who's 7. We live in Tokyo, Japan. I'm Zach Rosen. I make another very short podcast. It's called The Best Advice Show, and I am dad to Noah, who's 6, and Ami, who's 3. On today's show, we know that puberty is starting earlier and lasting much longer, almost a full decade for today's kids. So I'm bringing you a very interesting and useful interview with two people who have literally written the book on modern puberty. We're gonna hear that first. Then Elizabeth and Zach will join me for a round of recommendations. See you back here in a minute. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Cara Natterson and Vanessa Kroll Bennett, the authors of an amazing new book, This is So Awkward, which is all about puberty. They are puberty experts. They have dedicated their lives to helping young people navigate puberty, and they are here to answer some of our questions (laughs) and help you get your young ones through puberty. I'm Cara. It's so nice to meet you, and Jamila, thank you for having us. We're psyched to be here. Um, I'm a pediatrician. I was in practice for several years, then I left and flipped into a career of writing, which led me down a path of writing books for parents and then eventually books for kids about their bodies. So I'm involved with the Care and Keeping of You line of books from American Girl, which is like one of the most fun things I've ever done. And in 2020, launched a company called Order of Magnitude that is dedicated to flipping puberty positive because everyone goes through it. So why should it be awkward? And Vanessa and I work every single day to create product and content aimed at making this stage of life more comfortable for everyone involved. I, this is Vanessa, because Cara and I sound a little bit alike. I got into working on the wonderful, exciting, and awkward topic of puberty because I spent many years using sports to build girl self-esteem. Puberty became a big topic because it was affecting their self-esteem and it starts earlier. So I flipped into working on puberty. We have a podcast together, Car and I called the Puberty Podcast. And all we do is talk about all this wonderful, messy stuff together day in and day out. And that's how we ended up writing This Is So Awkward together. And I also have four teenagers, kids 13, 15, 17, and 20. So I live this all the time. How did I forget my own kids, Vanessa? (laughs) Classic Cara move. I have an 18 and a 20-year-old. So you all are truly experts. We're in it. (laughs) You're in it. Well, if experts count as people who screw up as often (laughs) as they do things right, then yes, Jamila, we are experts. (laughs) So to break the ice, let's start out with a cringy puberty memory of our own. I'll go first. When I was in maybe sixth grade, um, not long before I started my period, I started carrying a little pouch that my mom packed for me with panties and maxi pads, maybe some wipes. And one day I leave it on the school bus. Mm. 
and some boys find it mm. and they're tossing my panties around the bus saying oh. big draws <gasps> that is cringy uh, oh my god oh how often do you think about that story it's one of those things that I have deeply buried. And when I was Ugh. preparing for this interview, it came up. You know, it's so interesting that you say that because very often we do this exercise, we run puberty workshops. And one of the first things we ask adults to do is to bring up a puberty memory of their own. And so often people will say, I have not thought about that incident in 20 years. Like it's it, it's like buried and then it comes back to them when they start thinking and talking about puberty. So my story <laughs> is that I got my first period. I was, I took modern dance and I was wearing like blush shimmery tights and I pulled them down off after class and there was like a brownish rusty color in my tights and I realized that I had gotten my period. But the kicker was that I had borrowed the tights from somebody oh, no. else. So I got my first period in someone else's tights. Needless to say, I did not return the tights <laughs> to the original owner after that. I feel like I should stay on theme with the first period. Um, although I could say my one of my most powerful puberty memories, I have three brothers, is the mantra, you're so flat, the walls are jealous, that was Aww. chanted at me constantly. But on the first period theme... Um, our podcast listeners have heard this story from me more than once. I got my first period on my 14th birthday. I was a little bit late to the game, but on my 14th birthday, while Shirley MacLaine was accepting her Oscar for Terms of Endearment, that's what we were watching on TV, while wearing a white USA tracksuit because it was the 1984 Olympics and I lived in LA, and while sitting in a room with my parents who had separated three weeks earlier. And this was the first time that they were like back together in the same space. And um, so there are so many levels of awkward about that first <laughs> period moment. I can't even, so I, I still haven't unpacked it. And it's been a lot of years. Is it any wonder that you work in exactly. puberty after sharing D yes. story? <laughs> yeah, let's, let's dig deep into why Cara does this for a living. Yeah. So in each chapter of the book, you note how things have changed from 20, 30, 40 years ago. What are the big ways in which puberty has changed in recent decades? This is our favorite place to start, and I'm glad you you went broad first. Periods are not the beginning of puberty. It is really mood swings, breast budding, penis and testicular growth that we're talking about when we say the beginning of puberty. And the biggest thing that has changed is that the beginning of puberty has moved up in time. The average age for a girl to enter puberty today is between ages eight and nine. The average age for boys is between nine and 10. And compared to the original studies that were done in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, that timeline has moved up between two and three years. And in some cases, even four years, depending upon if a kid is on the very earliest end. So puberty has really um, moved up, but it hasn't moved faster. And what I mean by that is that the conversation about periods is a perfect example of a middle marker. Periods happen somewhere in the middle of your pubertal development. And first periods are happening just a couple of months sooner than they used to, not years. So the time between 
when puberty starts and when it ends has stretched to encompass much, much, much more time. Puberty now lasts almost a decade. It's a whole decade. When is the right time to start up a conversation about puberty with your kids? Do you want to wait for signs that it's begun or do you bring it up as soon as they're old enough to experience it? Yeah, We have very strong feelings, which is it's never too early and it's never too late. And both ends of that are very important. So, um, you know, you want kids to be prepared with information in advance. And so having conversations, not about absolutely everything under the sun, but toe-in conversations, right? About how the body might change or how moods might feel or what social dynamics might shift. They're really important. But for some parents who have not done that, and I should I should say we don't usually use the word parents. We we usually lean on the word adults because there's so many other people in kids' lives beyond parents who are um, influencers, right? So teachers and coaches and mentors and um, healthcare providers and religious figures. Um, but it, for the adults in these kids' lives, and usually it's the primary adults in their lives who are having these conversations. Uh, for the adults in these kids' lives, if they haven't started the conversations before things have started changing, it's never too late. So it's very easy to say, oh, I heard this conversation today about puberty and I realized I haven't talked to you about any of this stuff. So let's start talking. And the other thing to remember is talking about puberty is different than talking about sex. Like people often conflate puberty and burgeoning sexuality and sexual activity when really they're quite different, particularly now with like eight and nine-year-olds starting puberty, you're not talking to them about sex. You're talking to them about, hey, your body's changing. Did you notice that? Or is anyone in school using the word puberty before? Have you ever heard that word before? Or, hey, you know what? When a friend wants to like play with your hair and you don't want them to play with your hair, it's okay to say, no, thanks. I'm not in the mood for you to play with my hair right now. So a lot of stuff actually has nothing to do with sex and has everything to do with bodily autonomy and kids finding a voice and understanding that it's actually okay and normal and typical for their body to be going through changes. But if kids have that information before it happens rather than after it happened, it helps them a lot to feel like less confused and maybe less worried. There are arguably more books and more pop culture content addressing girls and puberty. Uh, which makes mm. your book stand apart because there's so much information about boys' experiences here. What are we missing when it comes to having these dialogues with boys? A lot, a lot, <laughs> because <laughs> boys have been left out of the conversation now for decades. And, um, you know, it's it's been so important to give voice to the female experience. There's, I, I don't, I don't want to dump on that at all because the fact that girls can talk openly about body changes, about periods. The fact that we can open this podcast with a conversation about periods, that's progress. That's amazing. And so I don't want to take away from that, but we have, for whatever reason, culturally shut boys out of the evolving conversation about bodies and moods and friendships and, you know, mental health and body image and all of it. And so we frame puberty conversations as being independent of gender, and they are. Everyone should learn about everyone's bodies. There's nothing shameful in learning about how other bodies work. 
And everyone should feel that they can ask questions about their changing bodies or can ask questions about the emotional shifts that are connected with changing bodies. And let me make a clear connection between those things. The hormones that drive physical maturation also circulate in your brain and they make you feel moody. They don't just, you know, estrogen and progesterone and testosterone, they don't just go into your brain. They surge all over your body and there are high levels in your brain and then they drop all over the body and there are low levels in the brain. And anyone who's listening to this has experienced these shifts in hormones because it's human nature. This is what happens during pubertal development. But the feelings that go along with those hormonal shifts are very real and they don't care what gender you are. So, the, the swings may look different. The classic estrogen swing in the brain looks very, it's obvious, right? It's laughing hysterically and you can't stop. It's crying when it's not warranted, right? Um, that's classic estrogen. Not all girls are going to be that way, but many are. The testosterone impacts on the brain are still being studied. It's not very sexy to study going quiet, but boys go quiet. And so I'm waiting and waiting and waiting for the data that shows that it's when testosterone surges and then drops in the brain that makes boys shut the door, shut down their volume, and not communicate. So when parents see a kid hurting with something, our first urge is to go, hey, I know just how you feel. In the book, you say, don't do that because it shifts the focus from them to you. So should we commiserate at all with our kids about our own puberty woes? Is there an appropriate time to share our own stories? Totally. But if you make it all about you, it tends to be unhelpful. So know your audience. There are definitely going to be times when a kid is engaged by you telling them a story about your puberty right? Um, They will feel like you are on their team. But if it's always about you and your path through puberty, it gets really boring for them because sometimes they just want to dump on you what their path is. And their path today looks really different than, than it did a generation ago. I mean, let's start with cell phones, right? A generation ago, kids did not go through puberty with cell phones in hand. And so it's a very, very big difference here. And the, the downstream implications of having the internet in the palm of your hand are very real. Um, that's where they're getting a lot of information. That's where they're getting a lot of misinformation. That's where they're getting a lot of porn exposure. There are all sorts of ways in which the digital climate influences their lived experience through puberty. So yeah, it's great when they hear about Vanessa in her tights or when they hear about me in my white tracksuit <laughs> and they can laugh and they feel like... but. They sometimes just want to share what's happening for them, and they want to have someone listen. And I think it's really nice if you have a story that has some humor in it. Like whenever there's an opportunity to inject some humor into conversations about puberty and this very tumultuous time, it's very reassuring. And it just like takes a little bit of air out of the situation and helps everyone relax a little bit. Like I'm not going to say to my kid oh my God, this kid broke up with me in seventh grade and I still think about it every single night. Because that's just going to make your kid feel like, oh my God, in 40 years, I'm still going to be thinking about this. But if you say to a kid, oh my God, yes, my tampon fell out of my bag. It was so mortifying. But then I took my tampon and I put it in a water bottle and I showed all the boys in my class what happens to a tampon in water. And they were like blown away by how cool it is, right? So there's just like a 
a shift in tone and perspective. One feels optimistic, empowering, funny. The other feels like upsetting and like a little bit um, hopeless to a kid. So you emphasize treating children as the age that they are, not the age that they may look. Can you talk about how assumptions based on a pubescent young person's appearance can hurt them? Yeah, I mean, it's really tricky now that puberty starts earlier. So you can have a 10 or an 11-year-old who looks, you know, 13 or 15 years old, years older than they actually are. And there's a couple things that happen. Adults can place expectations on them in terms of behavior in school or decision-making in certain situations that are unrealistic for a kid that age. And it makes that kid, it sets them up for failure when everyone's expecting them to act older and they're not older and they don't have the capacity to act older. The second reason it's important is because kids who look older and are treated older by peers are often exposed to risky things that are not appropriate for them and are frankly sometimes downright dangerous for them to be exposed to. So whether that's substances, whether those are risky experiences that older kids are up to that they shouldn't be, whether that's sexual activity. So we want to help protect kids who look older from being treated older, both by other adults and by their peers. Yeah, it's really important to know that just because the body is starting to become sexually mature at younger ages, the brain is not maturing any faster. And so a 10-year-old has a 10-year-old brain. And the way that they process information and the way they make decisions is 10 years old. And it doesn't matter if they're growing breasts or if their testicles are growing or if they are the last to the puberty development party. Their brain is 10. What do you tell a child who's feeling left behind by the more drastic puberty changes in their peers? Oh, it's a biggie. That's a biggie because there will always be people who are early and even though puberty is getting earlier, there still is a group that are first, and there will always be a group that's last. So we call them early bloomers and late bloomers. That is sort of the, the social and medical term that's used. And late bloomers are the last two and a half percent to go through puberty. And in general, those are boys who have not had any pubertal changes by the age of 14 and girls by the age of about 13. And let me tell you, they... They struggle because as awkward as it can feel to be going through puberty at eight and nine and 10, when everyone else has entered puberty and is grappling with these body changes and you're 13 or 14 and nothing is happening to you, it can make you feel like you're left out. It sounds crazy to us to think that not having zits or not developing breasts and feeling awkward about them is also a negative feeling because you feel left out, you feel left out. And there are worries that go along with it for some adults as well. Like, is there something wrong? Is there, is this not going to happen for my child? So what we strongly, strongly recommend is if a kid is worried to engage that kid in conversation and open up an avenue for them to talk to a healthcare provider if they have questions. If an adult is worried, talk to a healthcare provider. I mean, someone needs to examine a child and see if they're in puberty before you start getting reactive. And I will add that the earliest signs of puberty in boys are testicular and penile growth. And those tend to be very private. They're, you know, the testicles and the penis are covered by underpants and pants all day, every day. And boys at 
about these ages are starting to become private. Not all, but many. And so some parents look at a 14-year-old boy and think there's nothing going on, but they're not examining their genitals, nor should they. So this is the role of a healthcare provider. Go in, see your pediatrician, ask them to do a checkup. On the flip side, what do you say to a kid who is, say, grown large breasts before their classmates or who may be the first one in the classroom to get their period? How do we help very young children adjust to early puberty? It's hard to be the first and it's hard to be the last. And, and it's hard to be in one the of middle. The things, <laughs> and it's not so easy to be in the middle. And one of the things that we worry about, particularly with early blooming girls, is that breast growth in particular um, causes them to not want to participate in physical activity like sports or dance or things like that. And we know that being physically active is super important to kids' well-being, not just physical well-being, but emotional well-being. So making sure that a kid has the gear, like the clothing, the bra, the uniform, whatever that fits them properly, that feels comfortable, that allows them to move their bodies. The second thing is making sure that you have an open line of communication so they feel safe telling you, you know what, this really stinks. Or somebody said something to me in school today and it was it made me feel really unsafe. And making sure other adults in their lives are kind of towing the same line about being respectful of this kid's experience who aren't making comments about like, oh, wow, haven't you gotten grown up? Or, oh, you're so big. Or, wow, how much weight have you grown, right? Because a kid who's much bigger than other kids in their grade are going to be subject to those, frankly, thoughtless comments from other adults in their lives. So that's a moment, actually, where you step in as a caregiver and you say, you know what? We don't talk about bodies in our house. Everybody's on a different timeline. And this is my kid, and I'm. it's my job to protect my kid. And we really encourage... Um, setting that boundary. If you are concerned that your child is developing too early, just like Cara mentioned, if it feels late and nothing's happening, if you're concerned that a child is developing too early, that is a time to talk to a healthcare professional, even if it's just to get reassurance. But it's not something you should sit by and silently worry about. Um, there are lots of healthcare professionals who can guide you and give you advice. And starting with a pediatrician or a nurse practitioner is a great way to go. Throughout the book, you feature commentary from people just out on the other side, uh, post-pubescent young people. What did you learn from talking to them? Everything. <laughs> it's what we, you know, it's what we do all day. Vanessa and I really lean on youth voice to guide the information that we're putting out into the world. And they are they are the ones who have just come out through puberty, and they are the ones who can speak best to what the experience is like today. And that's why we ask them to share not only their experiences, but advice. What could adults do differently in a given situation? Or what did they do well? I mean, there's in the chapter about acne, there's one piece that's um, about how a dad said to the kid, um, the first pimple appears and he says, wow, that's a screamer. And he thinks he's being funny and sweet and light. And for this kid, it was really, you know, you don't want pimples and it feels bad. And now my dad is pointing it out and telling me how big it is. And, and the essay allowed for time to reflect on that and to recognize what, what the dad maybe had hoped to do and maybe how he could do it better. I mean, it's, it's really incredible to hear from kids. 
And the through line of all of them, I mean, they're on a million different topics, everything from sexual orientation to periods to boobs to um, decision making. But the through line is when they felt that the adults in their lives were non-judgmental and supportive and loving and just kind of standing by for them, eventually they appreciated the role their caregivers played. That there were times it was annoying and they were um, resentful of their parents, but that in the end they looked back and those were the moments that felt most important and meaningful to them. It's not one conversation. It's hundreds and hundreds of conversations over many, many years about so many little topics. And this is what can feel overwhelming to the adults. Most of us grew up with a the talk framework, and that's changed. That's not just not how it is anymore. So um, I know where Vanessa is going to pick up this ball is not only do we have to have lots of conversations, but we will mess them up. Recognizing that it's many small conversations um, cuts you a little bit of slack because you're going to mess it up. But if you mess up one tiny conversation about one corner of this stage of life, okay. So you go back and you say, you know what, kiddo? I messed up. I gave you the wrong information or I ignored your question. Let me take a do-over. And if you make a mistake, kids love it when you admit that you've made a mistake. So it's actually a win in the end when you mess up, if you go back and fix it and give them better information or you respond differently. So it's lots of talks, you're gonna mess them up, but don't worry because you get to take it again. That was Cara Natterson and Vanessa Kroll Bennett and their book is, This is So Awkward, Modern Puberty Explained. Cara and Vanessa, thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Let's move on to recommendations. Elizabeth, what are you recommending this week? I am recommending a Nintendo Switch game. It might be available on other platforms, but I'm not entirely sure, called Clubhouse Games. This has um, 51 classic games from around the world. It's been something we have been playing as a family, I actually enjoy playing it. Plus, it offers like tips on how to play these different games. Um, and the reason this popped into my head to recommend today is that I joined a group here that plays um, Japanese Mahjong. And literally the only reason I survived is from playing Mahjong on this Nintendo Switch game. So I knew enough to be able to keep up in this room of people that didn't speak very much English. And I, of course, speak no Japanese. Uh, so it's really fun. And you can learn a bunch of games that might have um, practical application other places. But it's nice because it coaches you and you can turn on all this helpful information. It's a really nice way to learn games. It has checkers and chess and Mancala and all kinds of fun stuff. We've we've really been enjoying it as a family. So it's called Clubhouse cool. Games. Nice. What about you, Zach? I have a game recommendation. It's called Taco Cat Goat Cheese Pizza. Have either of you played this? I've seen it before. I've never played it. Super fun. It's kind of like, it's a slap card game, kind of like um, Slap or Egyptian Rat Screw, but it, it has its own deck of cards featuring pictures of tacos, cats, goat, cheese, pizza, and a couple other images. Uh, I played this with Noah. This is the first card game we've played since uh, going through that awful war phase, um, whenever that was. War is the worst. Come on. Um, war is <laughs> such a bad card game. This is actually so fun. True. Like, 
it kept us uh, pretty engaged for hours this weekend. Uh, you can play it with just two people. It's more fun with four. A five or six year old can be competitive. Like it's it's not like you're gonna have to give them the game. You can you can still be competitive as an adult with a five year old is what I'm trying to say. It's very fun. I, I was like giddy, um, just sitting on the floor playing um, all weekend with Noah. So we played at our friend's house, and I immediately ordered a deck of our own. It's like seven bucks, um, maybe ten bucks, and uh, I, I can't recommend it more. Taco Cat Goat Cheese Pizza. She's at such a good age for these games. Like I feel like a whole new world is going to open up for some of these like uh, there, there's been a lot of games in this kind of genre recently i feel what like. else, do, do you have an, anything on the top of well go nuts for donuts okay is in this uh <laughs> in this field okay. um, i'll check that out too and then sushi go i would say is also of this they're, they're not slap but they're they're similar in that you're um like deck building and everyone can play competitively but your kids might do just as just as well as you do great it's no clue junior though right jamila no uh <laughs> nothing's best than clue junior we love clue junior around here yeah what have you got for us this week First of all, I'm at a moment where I'm really loving coming of age films about like middle school and high school girls um yes. they're the best I'm recommending you are so not invited to my bat mitzvah. Mm-hmm. We just watched this too. It's an Adam Sandler flick, which means his daughters star in it along with him. Uh, it's about two besties that are both very excited to plan their bat mitzvahs and all is going well until a popular boy comes between them and everything unravels. And it's very cute fast moving i really enjoyed it the youth performances were great very sweet movie it definitely exceeded my expectations i was expecting just a really shitty netflix movie but it was good no it was very good i lol'd all right well that is it for our show thank you for listening please subscribe leave a rating and review and tell your friends this episode of mom and dad are fighting is produced by rosemary belston and maura curry Shasha Leonard is the voice of our listeners. Alicia Montgomery is the VP of Slate Audio. For Elizabeth Newcamp and Zach Rosen, I'm Jamila Lemieux. Thank you for listening.